Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. We are honored to have Dr. Cheryl Fraser, sex therapist and Buddhist psychologist, join us this week to talk about intimate relationships and passion. Kenji and I first met Cheryl at Tony Robbins' Relationship Week in October 2019, and we are struck by her relationship insights and the mindfulness work she does with couples. We invited her to be on our podcast because we know many of our listeners and students are in relationships with their partners, who are both their intimate partners and now their real estate business partners, too. We know firsthand that being both can be challenging at times, so we asked Dr. Fraser to join us on Rich Doc Poor Doc to share her thoughts and insights on how to successfully be real estate business partners and life partners. We hope you enjoy the show. So Dr. Cheryl, we are so excited to have you here with us on Rich Doc Poor Doc. For those of you who haven't met you before, can you tell us a little bit about you and how you ended up doing what you're doing with helping people with relationships? Yes, certainly. I think it's one of those classical doctor heal thyself moments. I was at actually UCSF Medical School. I was doing my postdoc work there in sexuality uh, and clinical psychology. And my husband walked out on me. And I'm there not only doing my full clinical internship and my postdoc work, which we all know is uh, more than an average 40 hours a week. I was also writing my PhD dissertation at the same time. So sleep, you know, sex, uh, happiness, what are those? And he just left to go visit his parents up in Vancouver and never came back. And I didn't hear from him for a year. So there I was pursuing the dream. So many of us have pursued in terms of our career path, what we feel is our life mission and saying, what the heck is the point other than, of course, serving our patients, our clients, and humanity. But in terms of do we sacrifice our own life and happiness and relationships sort of at the altar of medicine or at the altar of business, at the altar of what I think in North America we, we misdiagnose as success? Yeah, I think a lot of people in medicine do that, right? They are so focused on their careers and on working so hard that medicine always comes first and their relationship comes second. And it's if there's enough time, energy and effort, right? I'll put it into my relationship. And you kind of tend to take the relationship for granted. So do you see that happening a lot with your clients? Yeah. Honestly, if there was one big diagnosis I could make, it's what I call people falling into marriage incorporated. Whether you're married, common law, gay, straight, whatever you're two people, or if it's consensual, polyamory, three people who love each other and are trying to walk a romantic sexual path together. I'm euphemizing that with the word marriage here. What I call marriage incorporated is very similar to what you just said. We're running our relationship, our romantic relationship, kind of like a business, and we're doing a pretty freaking good job. I mean, the kids are getting to activities when they're allowed to in this interesting age we're in. Uh, we high five each other as we pass through the hall and you're taking him there and her there. Everybody's getting enough green substances in their smoothies and the mortgages are getting paid. And in the case of so many of your listeners, the secondary business income is being built. Where are the two of you? It's marriage incorporated. It's not passion. It's not excitement. It's not the depth, simplicity of appreciating you and remembering with fresh eyes, bringing novelty to the way I look at you today. Instead of, eh, I woke up with you every day for the last 18 years and your breath is smelly. It's <laughs> look at this extraordinary person who's doing this, if we're honest, folks, this ridiculous thing we embark in, which is I'm going to attempt to love you and have fun with you for the rest of my life. So we fall into marriage incorporated by taking our relationship for granted. And Kenji, I loathe to see, as you as physicians so often see, a diagnosis, a cancerous tumor, a wake-up call of any kind, an accident, wake couples up when it's almost too late. And they've let Mm -hmm. so much of their relationship and family life go under the bridge, pursuing, you know, dollar dollar bills, I guess. I am highly motivated for success and abundance and to create extraordinary work life vitality, but not at the sacrifice of the most important predictor of happiness, well-being and satisfaction, which is having a fantastic, intimate, connected relationship with your sweetheart. 
Yeah, I think one of the big things I walked away from Tony Robbins' relationship series last October, where you spoke a lot, actually, <laughs> was that relationships do take work. And I walked around for a number of years saying, oh, my relationship's easy. It doesn't take work. But that's because I was taking it for granted and not putting in the work that I really should have been putting in. Instead, I was saying, oh, it's easy. It doesn't take work. That was the wrong approach to it. So can you talk to me about some of the ways you help people move out of that mindset of taking their relationship for granted to start to see their, I think you call it sweetie, right? They're sweetie yeah, in a different, different way and to pay attention to them differently. Yes, 100%. Like anything, if we don't measure where we're at, it's hard to know how we're going to get to where we want to go. And if we aren't more clear about where we want to get to, i.e., what's your relationship vision? What kind of relationship do you want? And where along the way did you probably subconsciously give up on it? And one of the things I like to remind us of, and I teach it as a, the three keys to passion. So I'm going to briefly outline those for people. So they've got a bit of a template. And all of you listening can start uh, right now as I describe these three keys that predict a passionate, connected, loving relationship. Start rating yourself and you're like zero to 10, 10 being the highest, you're doing spectacular, zero being, oh my good Lord, are we in trouble? How are you doing in these three building blocks of, a, of an exceptional relationship? I'll just cover them briefly here. And if you want to actually measure yourself, I have a free quiz you can take and get a quick and dirty reading on how you're doing. You'll be able to self-diagnose pretty darn well. The first one, of the three keys to passion. And I visualize these as a triangle. So I call it the base of the passion triangle. I call intimacy, but I'm not using the word intimacy there as a euphemism for sexuality. I'm talking there about what we might call relationship friendship, uh, communicating, conflict resolution, uh, supporting each other's hopes and dreams, even if your partner's hope and dream is not yours. Your partner wants to plunge into investing in real estate and you're completely freaked out by it. Can you learn to support your partner's hopes and dreams, whether they match your own? Not taking each other for granted. But the stuff that most couples therapy talks about, I would say is only one arm of a three-arm triangle, which is intimacy, connection, communication. You know me better than anyone else. You've got my back. You're the person I want to call immediately when something good happens. And absolutely, you're the person I call when something upsetting happens. The second side, and this is the one, this is the one almost all of us lose after the first six to 24 months of dating. I call it thrill. And we're all familiar with it. It's the fantastic falling in love feelings. Everything from the sexual lust, the excitement. Uh, back in the day, I'm kind of old now. I'd walk in the house and I'd look at the answering machine with a cassette thing in it and I would see if the red light was blinking because that meant I had a message and I go running over there with my heart beating is it him is it her and then press the button and be like my mom did you remember to do oh man and your heart would fall these days it's the text it's the whatever thrill is that ineffable butterflies in the stomach excitement and given that we have so many medical professionals listening there's been new research that indicates the biochemistry of falling in love actually mimics the biochemistry of obsessive compulsive disorder so we literally were madly in love. We literally couldn't stop thinking about each other. And then that dies down. We're cave people. We're about the chase, the conquer, get the mate, drag him back to the cave and go, me done good now. And then we move into decorating the cave and making cave babies, which moves into, as most of us have experienced, a, a type of a comfortable relationship. The thrill doesn't last forever is one of my least favorite statements, and it's a myth. However, our felt experience is exactly that for the majority of us. If we don't cultivate thrill, learn to reignite the falling in love feeling. I often say uh, my mission is to help couples fall in love over and over again with the one they're already with. So we got intimacy, thrill, and the last one, the juicy one, the one that too many of us neglect because the thrill is gone, is sensuality. And by that, I mean the entire spectrum of the erotic life, from holding hands, from a soft gaze across the table and a smile when you're in a group of people, to uh, beautiful lovemaking, and to the wild, taboo, crazy, you know, what I call a beautiful, dark sexual energy, and I mean that as a positive thing, where we play with our taboos and our excitement and the things we maybe haven't done ever, or since we were earlier in lust and love. Now, Marriage Incorporated is usually pretty good in the first one, 
intimacy. We talk, we connect, we talk about who's picking up who, where, and do the, does the car need to go in and get its brakes fixed? But usually pretty low in thrill and sensuality. So back to the question, what can we do about it? First of all, figure out where you're at and reignite your vision for how you think your relationship can be, even if you don't really believe it yet. We didn't really believe we'd get through med school or PhD or build the business. We didn't really believe that by participating in your folks program that we'd end up with a real estate portfolio. But we went forward and put in the effort anyway. Oh my good Lord, people. I'm going to actually tell a brief story from the program you and Kenji were at where we met in Hawaii. Uh, it was a Tony Robbins relationship intensive. And one fellow stood up. I don't know his name. And he said, hey, to about 600 people, right? High achievers like you two, really dialed in brilliant success magnets. He said, how many of you have read five or more business books this year? 97% of the hands shot up into the air. Remember that moment? Yeah, totally. And then he said... What? He said, how many of you have read five or more relationships, communication, or sexuality books this year? I think about seven hands went up out of 600. And I love this guy because he said, I challenge you. Who's willing to join me and make a commitment right now in the next 12 months to read at least five relationships, love, and sexuality books and start putting some of the interest, the effort, and the work into our romantic relationships? So there you go, folks. Know where you're at. Rate yourself now. Take heart. It is possible. It's not easy and it's not typical, but neither is completing eight or 10 years of university education. That's not typical or easy either, but it is possible to create an extraordinary passionate relationship, even if you're on the verge of divorce or breaking up right now. Even if you've got extensive negative patterns between the two of you, even if far more common than we want to admit, you have a, a sexless marriage, which is clinically defined as less than half a dozen times a year of sexual contact, whether that's full intercourse or other erotic activity with your partner, not counting solo sexual life. No matter how bad it is, if you have intentionality and you're willing to look at patterns that are in the way, if you're willing to learn the tools and skills that exceptional couples have just like anything else we conquer in the gym, learning how to cook fantastic Thai food from scratch. Passion's a teachable skill. Let me sum it up that way. It is not an ineffable thing. It is not because you found your soulmate. Ah, there is no soulmate. It is not because you're particularly gifted or lucky, although we may be partly those things. But then what do you do with it? I don't think okay or good are the correct adjectives to describe our marriage, our relationship. I want to hear fantastic. I want to hear exceptional. I want to hear they drive me effing crazy some of the time, but I would never want to live without them. I want to hear spark. So that's great. I think one, one way I might sum it up is something I heard you say before, which is falling in love is easy, but staying in love takes mindfulness. And you've given us a lot of really amazing tools there. One thing that I also see as a problem in relationships, especially with our students who are investing and when it comes to finances and money, something I grew up with was money causes conflict. And I know that I've heard you talk about how managing conflict is a really critical relationship skill. Can you talk to us about conflict and how we can better handle it as a couple, especially when it comes to something as charged as money? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think there's an old kind of what we call an Aunt Fanny statement, right, that floats around and we all just automatically believe. But this one might be accurate, which is the, the top three things couples argue about is money, sex, and their kids. So a couple of things off the top. First of all, to reassure everybody, having conflict, having arguing, even being loud, yelling, arguous does not predict breakup or divorce, which surprises most of us. So if you argue a fair bit, I'm a bit of a hot head. I will be the first to admit it. Married to a pretty mellow fellow. And I'm pretty reactive at times. Even after months and months of meditating in silence 12 hours a day, I still have a bit of a hair trigger. So what I like to differentiate is it's not how much you argue. It's not how loudly or frequently you argue. It's the style of 
your actual arguing style. I'm going to ground this pretty quickly for people. There's certain things that are super destructive arguing styles, and we want to learn how to fight fair. I teach a couples immersion program online, and that's basically what we spend the first couple weeks on is conflict, learning how to communicate, approaching topics we're super afraid to approach. What are the red flags you want to look out for in your own arguing style that are really destructive and you need to fix? One of them is personal global criticism. Now, criticisms in almost any relationship, unless one of you lived on Mars and one of you lives in the Antarctica and you don't have any way to communicate with each other. Other than that, we're going to have some conflict. but And we're going to criticize, babe, why'd you do it that way? But the type of damaging criticism, Kenji, is global, personal, and attacking. So let's say, I'm sure this would never happen, but you uh, have a commitment to me to take out the garbage and you forget. And I'm upset about it. Where I live here, they pick up the garbage every 14 days because they encourage curbside recycling and curbside compost. And I've got two cats and two dogs. And the waste material from the butt ends of four pets goes in our garbage. So if it's August and it's hot and you forget to take the garbage out, we're going to have some rank evil garbage for a total of 28 days. Maybe I'm annoyed at that. And I say, Kenji, I can't believe it. You forgot again. You're so unreliable. I have to do everything around here. That's a super destructive criticism because I've made it global. You're so unreliable. I've made it really personally critical. You did this, you're unreliable. And then I've done thrown in this martyrdom victim trip about how I have to do everything around here, which is simply statistically not accurate. If I say, babe, come on, that's the third time you've forgotten. You made a commitment to do that. I need you to do better. That could be called a criticism, but I'm going to call it a healthy criticism. And I'm going to teach everybody mm-hmm. right now a little technique for that. This is drawn from the work of John Gottman, great couples therapist and colleague of mine. And essentially, we'll call it, if I'm upset with you about the garbage fiasco, my whole neighbor's, oh my God, our street is so stinky now. But anyway, I want to say to you, I feel X about Y and I need Z. It's this simple. I feel frustrated and upset. I feel X about Y. I feel frustrated and upset that you neglected to take the garbage up again. I feel X about Y and I need Z and I need you to do a better job of doing the garbage. That is a healthy criticism, so to speak. So not how much you argue, not how loud you argue. I've been known to yell. I'm going to admit it. I'm not proud of it and I'm working on it. It's the type, the style, your fighting style. A couple other ones very quickly that predict actually divorce with a high likelihood over 80%. If you have a lot of those personal global criticisms, if you have contempt, this is the killer. Contempt is where not only do I personally criticize you, but I put you down as a lesser human being than me. And it can be in a, and it can be in a left upper lip snarl, cross-cultural. It can be in a squinting of the eyes. It can be in the ubiquitous eye roll where I dismiss you with contempt. So I don't just say, ah, oh, you forgot the garbage. You're so unreliable. I have to do everything around here. I say something like, it must be nice mm. to have a husband that you can count on. I wouldn't know. Ooh. Even as I mimic it, we all groan. Not to be too cheeky, men's testicles crawl up when they hear that tone of voice and women's hearts break. So contempt is a killer. And the last two are defensiveness, where I don't take any ownership for what I did. So I'm the garbage debacle. And you say, Cheryl, you're so unreliable. You didn't take the garbage up. And I go, yeah, but I was really busy. What you don't know is that Johnny had the sniffles and uh, the cat ran away. That's defensive. I'm not taking any ownership for what you've brought up. If I say, babe, you're right. I didn't take the garbage up. Let me tell you why we're in a good flow. That's a, that's a really great relationship skill. Own it, then explain. And the last one, so we got global personal criticism, contempt. I put you down like you are a mere mortal and I'm a goddess of all time. Try being married to a sex and marriage therapist. Everybody send my husband flowers right now, please. I know everything, honey. Anyway, like I'd ever do that. And then the third is defensiveness. And the fourth one is stonewalling, basically refusing to engage at all. I flick on the TV, I walk away, I say, I'm not talking about this. Now, that can be a healthy technique I teach people at other times. If we're flooded with emotion and irrational, choosing and having a deal between you and I where we deliberately take a time out, I'm not talking about that is destructive. That can be really helpful. But I'm talking about where I just shut you down and walk away. So money, real estate. What if you are pursuing a dream, uh, investing in real estate, building your portfolio, and you're 
partner is dead set against it. They have their own money fears. They're more of a security-based person. They mm-hmm. don't necessarily think you can do it. And who are these wacky two semi-retired MDs you're following anyway? Money's a very core patterning for most of us around safety, around risk, around love. If you love me, you won't put me in a financial risk position. That is a really hard one, guys, in terms of what do you do, not just with money, but with any major thing, when your partner does not get on board with your hopes and dreams. One of the predictors of great long-term relationship is shared hopes and dreams. And if I have a dream you don't share at all, that you more or less cheer me on from the sidelines. So when I wanted to take my business online the way you two have done and create, in my case, a couple's online program, I had a spouse that knew that was a financial risk, knew it meant pretty much closing down my clinical work to give the amount of time and energy to build a new business. And instead of him saying, but what will we do, babe? You're the major moneymaker right now. And if you're not seeing patients, dot, 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 he went, do it. How can I help? We'll figure it out, you know? So we can't make our partner have the same dream as us. And in fact, we shouldn't. We didn't marry ourselves. We didn't fall in love with ourselves. But ideally, I want to help couples in conflict around any big thing like money, like sex, like kids. I want to help them figure out a way to compromise that they can both live with. I may truly not agree with your decision to quit corporate law and cultivate an organic tomato farm, but I love you. And within reason, meaning if you don't bankrupt us and we're all living in a cardboard box with our infants, within reason, can I say I'm scared? Here's my feelings, but I'm going to do my best to support you even if it's not my dream. Now, we're covering some really complex ground, and we can all say that sounds pretty simple for something really complex, but just as a way to give people hope that I've had the pleasure to work with couples that, honestly, guys, if I was a gambling woman and I had a 100 bucks to put down, I would have voted that there's no way in hell that marriage was going to make it. And I've worked with couples who were doing really well and came in for a tune-up, and I thought that they were going to be really strong, and they've chosen to split up. There isn't a dandy cause and effect there between how much distress you're in and whether or not your relationship will survive. The key ingredient, this will not surprise either of you, is what are your intentions? What your, is your mindset? And are you willing to take 100 response, 100% responsibility for your relationship, even as a last ditch effort. I get a lot of couples joining my program who are post-affair and very close to splitting up, who are not post-affair, just generally quietly miserable, and this is their last gasp at seeing whether they can reconnect. No matter where you're at, problems are solvable. That doesn't mean everybody's going to solve them, but do everything you can to improve your own relationship. And if at times it is wise, caring, compassionate, and intelligent to dissolve a partnership, do it with kindness, do it with fairness, and do it in ways that you can walk away with your head held high because you treated the person you loved fairly. Now, if you're the person who is going out there and investing in real estate and and your partner is not supportive, are there any strategies for getting them on board or, like you said, get them to support what you're doing at the very least, even if they don't decide that they want to get on board? Yeah, again, probably a thornier issue. I mean, literally people check out my other work and go deeper so I can help you with it. But at the very base, don't try to get them on board, Kenji, because then we're trying to control or influence them. We're trying to change. And I'm a stubborn person. I've met your wife. I think mm-hmm. she's a fiery lady. <laughs> if you tell us we need to get on board, Kenji's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you tell us to get on board with something, I got responses, don't tell me what to do. So if instead you essentially validate your partner's point of view, if your partner's point of view is this is crazy, you're going to fail, you're going to cost us our life savings, you should absolutely not do it. Say, babe, I'm really listening to that. I'm getting how much concern you have for me. I'm getting how much concern. I wouldn't use fear because they might get defensive if you said fear. How much concern you have about our finances. How worried you are that this dream and this thing I'm pursuing won't work. I am not dismissing your concerns. I'm really taking them into account. And, not but, and. I feel so strongly about this. It is so important to me. I believe it's going to lead to something that we will both look back and say, that was valuable, that was worthwhile. So I'm going to respect your point of view. I'm going to be willing to listen to your point of view. 
And I'm making this choice. I'm making this adult choice to still pursue this dream. So you hear there, guys, I'm not trying to get you on board. I'm acknowledging and validating that your concerns have some merit. And ideally, we're not actually fighting about it. We're agreeing to disagree. Now, I make it sound easy, but again, there are tools and communication strategies you can use to literally break down a thorny problem like that and find your way to a compromise, which is defined as neither of us got everything we wanted, but we're both okay with what we've agreed to. And that might be, give me a year, babe. Give me a year. I'm going to take 50% of our savings and then we will reassess. And if you're not feeling more confident in this model, 12 months from today, you can write it down. You can make a written contract, stick it on the wall with little red hearts all over it. Come on, lighten up people. And then say, then we will readdress this issue. Mm -hmm. Time limits are good. Fear and anxiety, as we know, bubbles in a vacuum of not knowing. Time limit, okay, I'm going to watch my crazy wife, husband, partner, lover, throw all our money away in this crazy get rich scheme that's definitely not going to work, but I only have to tolerate it for 12 months and then I can convince them I was right. People are more likely to go along with that. This episode is brought to you by Keystone CPA. Are you tired of losing your hard-earned money to taxes each and every year? The truth is that tax savings is not just for the super wealthy. As a real estate investor, you too can take advantage of all the tax saving strategies that are available to help you protect your hard-earned money. Top-selling authors and tax strategists Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland specialize in tax saving strategies, especially for real estate investors. If you're interested in working with Keystone CPA, be sure to contact Amanda and Matt by emailing them at srmd at keystonecpa.com. Be sure to also download their audio recording of the top 10 tax saving strategies for real estate investors for free to learn easy steps you can take to start saving on taxes and supercharge your pathway to financial freedom. Go to www.keystonecpa.com forward slash srmd.php. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semi-retiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. Now back to the show. So I think a lot of good advice there. So it reminds me of something I learned maybe, I don't know, six or seven years ago about empathy, really. It was when your partner is interacting with you in a really way that's starting to get you upset and they're obviously upset. There's a reason underneath how they're acting or why they're acting the way they are. And if you can empathize with their feelings, whether it's coming from fear, I think Tony Robbins always says it's either people are either having a cry for help is right. That's what he's always saying when people act in a really bad way. And so I, I think like empathizing with that person and what they're feeling, if you can do that, then you can start to see it from their eyes and then you can understand their position. And then you come at them with a really different approach instead of just defensiveness and anger, right? You feel their pain. And a lot of this is, it's the basis fear, the fear for the family not feeling the certainty. And then another thing I heard with this time limit, which I think is really cool, is with familiarity, the fear goes down, right? You start out real estate investing, you're scared. But six months later, after you bought a couple properties, like there's a sense of familiarity and you're not scared anymore and that fear goes away. And so with time, actually, you could see that your partner's fear may start to dissipate as they start to get that certainty and familiarity with what's going on. So I think that's really a cool idea as well. 100%. I suspect much of the audience listening are parents. And when we're doing a great job of parenting and our child comes home, everybody hates me. No one will sit with me at lunch. I'm never going to have a friend. A lot of great parents make a mistake right there and they skip the step of validating their kid's point of view. They have empathy, loads of it. But we tend to say, oh, honey, that's not true. 
tell me about your rotten day. I know you're going to have friends. Instead of going, that sounds really hard and sad, honey. What happened? Well, because no one is ever going to love me because they didn't let me sit at the table. And we're like, oh, wow, you must have felt so lonely. That must have been so rough. And then when you've empathized, I call it seeing your partner's other side of the clock. We do this big intervention on it in the course where we really go through this with your partner, just what Leite said. What's going on your side of the clock? I call it that because in my clinical office, I have a clock and I hold it up. And if you two are sitting across from me, I hold up the face of the clock to you, Leite, and I say, pretend you're a Martian and you don't know what a clock is and you're looking at this earth object. I want you to describe it to me using any words except clock. And you think, this is silly. And you say, okay, it's about the size of a palm. It's gold colored. It's got these sticky outy things that go around in a circle and it's got Roman numerals. I say, great, you get an A+. Then I turn to Kenji. I flip the clock around. I say, same earth object, tell me what you see, you know where this is going, right? And he says, uh, it's black, it's got a couple round dial things on the back, and it's got a kickstand that sticks out from the back. And then I say, who's right? And then you guys laugh, and you say either, well, neither of us is right, or we're both right. So when your child comes home and says, everybody hates me, I'll know, never have a friend, and we say, that's not true, you'll have lots of friends, we've negated their side of the clock. So when Kenji says it's black with a handle and dials, and you say it's gold with Roman numerals, he says, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it is. That's fundamentally the cause of our communication problems. So when I can empathize and ask myself, what I teach couples to do is literally use this phrase because it's an anchor phrase for them. Honey, what do you see from your side of the clock? Honey, what do you see from your side of the clock? Which is a beautiful little touch point for what you shared there, Leite, about can we empathize? If someone's lashing out, Many of us are animal lovers, and I say, imagine you've adopted a dog or a cat that's generally quite congenial and loving, and you go to pat it, and it lashes out at you. Your first thought is, it's probably frightened or in pain. Same as a human being. You lash out at me, you're either frightened or in pain, physical or mental, and that can shift and help us be more empathic. At least the times coming back to falling in love is easy, and staying in love takes mindfulness, that we take a mindful second break to check our own reactivity, that's the defensiveness, one of the four bad arguing styles, and say, wait, wait, okay, I'm inside, I'm like, dang, you're being so unreasonable. But externally, I can go, okay, can you help me understand why you feel that way? We don't have to say it in Zen voice. We can say it in irritable, frustrated voice, because we're humans. Okay, what? Okay, why do you feel that way? I don't get it. We can still then move towards empathy. It's so difficult in the moment to get out of yourself and to be in that person right? The other person and what they're feeling and why they're acting the way they are. But it's so powerful. I think that if all of us just did that one thing, it would completely revolutionize like interactions. Honest to goodness, you're right. If we could stop and say, tell me what you're seeing, it would revolutionize interactions. And in fact, I'll ground this in science or at least a, a tremendous example. This is based on the work of a guy that wrote a, a book called Getting to Yes. It's a negotiation book. And he negotiated the peace treaty between Gorbachev and Reagan, the nuclear disarmament treaty. And he basically used the other side of the clock. He basically spent several days helping the USSR understand the U.S.'s perspective and helping the U.S. understand the USSR's perspective before he moved to compromise. So if it worked for that, I think it can work for your marital dramas, no matter how entrenched and painful and agonizing they are. What do you see on your side of the clock? Why do you think me investing in real estate is a horrible, terrible idea and it's going to ruin the family? Help me understand what you're seeing, what you're thinking. Help me understand. Yeah, and that's such a cool concept too from the sense of you lower your risk because something Keith Cunningham always says is in decision-making, look at the upside because all of us are really good at that, right? We're all optimists and there's always gonna be the upside that we know very intimately. Look at the downside and all the possibilities and that's the part we don't like to do. And then look at the third thing, which is can I live with the downside, right? And so all your partner's doing is bringing up the downside that maybe you don't wanna look at. And you're just focused on the upside only, but you have a blind spot and you need your partner to bring up the downsides and to be able to decide if you can live with those and to maybe do some risk mitigation to make sure that you don't go into those downsides. So it's actually a gift they're giving you by challenging you to think beyond just the upside. Yeah, absolutely. It's that simple and that difficult. But when we remember, which we so easily forget, my partner's my friend, I love this person. I want to be kind to them. Yeah, they drive me crazy. Yeah, we've got our stuff. Yeah, maybe we need to work on our stuff for sure. 
But ultimately, we're not enemies. But in conflict, we feel like enemies. We polarize into me against you. And, and like, it's gold. It's black. It's gold. It's black. You're crazy. What's wrong with you? Instead of, I don't see what you see. Help me. Help me. I don't see it. I can imagine some listeners might feel overwhelmed right now if they're in a situation where there's conflict about money or investing. What would you recommend I do in terms of addressing this conflict if I wanted to seek outside help? What would I do? Like sit down with somebody like you, right? Or would I get a book? Would I take a course? What are the steps? Yeah, you've, you've listed some great steps and they're all based in one thing, choosing to learn new skills and practice them with accountability and support and expert advice so I can learn to be better at what? Being in a relationship. I can learn to be better as a partner. Remember, there are three keys to passion. Intimacy is this conflict, communication, understanding, other side of the clock part. We also then want to regenerate thrill and excitement and have a rich, profound sexual life. We haven't talked about that much on this podcast, but I emphasize that a lot with people. I'm going to be perfectly straightforward because that's how the three of us roll. I've been a couples and sex therapist clinically for 20 years, worked with a lot of couples, and also had a full-time talk radio show helping couples and other things. What I now recommend in this day and age is an immersion experience followed by follow-up and accountability, much like the learning models you and I have enjoyed as students of Tony Robbins and elsewhere. What you're doing with your audience is an immersion program, and then there's memberships and there's follow-ups. So truly, if people are listening and they're interested, if they like my approach and my style based on this brief conversation, they should check out my immersion program for couples. It's called Become Passion become passion, not move mm-hmm. around for it, not expect mm-hmm. it to fall off a turnip truck, hit you on the head and be easy. Become passion, create love that lasts a lifetime. And I've got free masterclasses where I'm talking about that all this month. People can get the links below in your show notes, I'm sure, or just go to my website, which is drcherylfraser.com. And in that, you get eight to 10 weeks of video lessons, live coaching every week with me, Q&As. It's, it's truly an immersive program. And then follow up and accountability. Absolutely. If you can find an excellent marriage and sexuality therapist, because the majority of couples therapists don't have any training in sexuality, which is like MDs in sexuality. No offense to our audience, but I feel very badly for MDs who someone comes with a complex sexual problem. And back when I was at UCSF, we taught the sexuality segment to the residents and the med school students, and they got five hours of training. I don't know how much you guys got, but it was about five hours of training in human sexuality. So make sure if it's a sexuality-based issue that you get someone who's really trained in sexuality. Books are great, providing you don't just read them. Actually read them and do the stuff. That's one of my personal goals. Like everybody here, we're all academics. We can consume information like a house on fire. But do we then take it into action and accountability? And the only downside to a book, I like them. I wrote one. It's called Buddha's Bedroom. I think it's a great couples book. Is the onus is on you to kind of one of you usually, honey, let's read the chapter in the book. Honey, let's do the exercise in the book. Honey, how about we? And what I like when you join a program is someone else is being the bossy one, so to speak, and saying, hey, Kenji and Leite, this week I really want you to watch these two 20-minute lessons. I want you to carve off at least 30 minutes and do this deep dive into the other side of the clock communication exercise. I want you to pick a medium hot topic, not your worst one yet. I want to train you on the skills, get you to talk about a medium hot trigger topic between the two of you and start to get these as a new pattern that you can then plug in your most contentious issues, do stuff like that. But the the short version is do something. Make passion a priority is one of my favorite phrases because we don't. We do when we're falling in love. Oh my goodness, I would love to hear some of your early dating stories, but I'm sure you each stood on your head to create romantic, exciting, enticing experiences for each other, not to mention the mind-blowing, lusty sexuality. Uh, We thought about our week, even if you were residents or in med school or starting your practices, I have no doubt you've compared your calendars. Tell us a story in a sec of of a real one, please. And you found that magic 63 minutes this week where neither of you was on call or in the ER or something, and you made it happen. So do you remember? Do either of you have a story you can share with us about making each other a priority in the early days? We still do that, right? Our our lives are so busy early on. We were both working full-time as hospitalists. And more so, than full-time. Yeah, more than full-time. And actually. you had a yeah, company. I was, yeah, I was juggling another company as well. So 
We had something that we still actually do to this day. Tomorrow is one of those days, but we have a, we call it Laka Days. So our initial is LA and K, Laka Days. And so we have set aside days. And you're right, sometimes it was half a day, right? Or a few hours, uh, Laka moments. But yeah, we have Laka Days still. And tomorrow is one of those where yeah. we're actually going to go mushrooming, hiking, just stuff that we love to do just for us. Right. And it's non-negotiable. Unless one of the children is terribly sick, then you can negotiate by saying, babe, are you okay if we shift it two days? So let's switch things around. We're going to do it two days later. But it's not, oh, it got busy. Let's not bother. Right. One of the most important things. That's so important. I mean, the last two Laka days we have skipped mm -hmm. because we've been recording bookkeeping course. Yeah, and right. my Tony Robbins coach said to me, you know what Tony would do? If you got called on to stand up in front of everyone, he would say, you just haven't decided to do it. You know, it, it stabs you right in the heart. You're like, yeah. crap, I, yeah. I really, I haven't decided to commit to it fully if I'm letting other things in, impede. Right. And so I was like, okay, because Kenji's been wanting to set aside Wednesdays forever mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. And we've tried and tried and tried, but like, yeah, we're Tries completely committed yeah, to yeah. Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesdays off now. Follow Yoda, right? Do you try or not do try? It's right. to do or not to do. Right. Beautiful. And what I also love, because real life does sometimes derail our best intentions, as you well know. So maybe the Laka day turns into a Laka moment or a Laka hour or a Laka beautiful romantic hour out having a glass of wine in an appy and not talking about business. Compromising is different than not doing it all. So great. This was a relationship tune-up for the two of you, just like that. Boom. I want you, can I hold you accountable? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Will you agree to shoot me an email within the next seven days and tell me about a lock a day, afternoon, or date, and uh, tell me how it went and when you did it? Uh, so Absolutely. You know, we got to all walk our talk people. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the most powerful things about the lock a day for us is we're making each other a priority, right? Because mm -hmm. we're saying to each other, you are the most important thing and I'm going to set aside everything else. Because I think the tendency, especially in startups, is that the business starts to take over everything. Mm -hmm. And just even making that statement by setting up a lock a day, you are saying to the other person, you're the most important thing in my life. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Really big deal. It's a very big deal. And I hear you. I'm in course launch mode this month myself. You know what that's like. So it's, uh, you know, 28 days of 12 hour days. And then you go to bed and the brain's coming up with new great ideas. And my sweetheart's been through this once with me. And so we took, um, we're recording this on a Tuesday and on Saturday, we took the whole day out of the house because I knew if I was in the house, the computer would go, Cheryl, come write something brilliant, you know. So we got out of the house. We took the dogs. I live on Vancouver Island, the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and we just meandered and went to a market and it was fantastic. So that was our version of a, a lack of day. <laughs> and I try hard to practice what I preach. And when I fail, I set new intentions and I begin again. Can I just lay down? really quickly some sexuality information mm -hmm. that everybody listening because we got so many clinicians listening they need to know this for themselves and they need to know it for their patients really briefly i'm on a soapbox these days around reassuring everybody that you're normal if your sexual desire your sexual arousal for your partner really wanes over time in long-term relationship after the first say 18 months that's that crazy falling in love biochemistry the cocktail of lust and love we mentioned earlier in this recording i just want to introduce two terms that might be new to some folks and everybody needs to know particularly any of us caring for other people and being educators the difference between what's called spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Spontaneous desire is that I want to rip your clothes off right now. I'm lusty and horny feeling. We love it. It's fantastic. But I like to say it's about as common as your teenager spontaneously offering to clean the garage for you. If it ever happens, enjoy the heck out of it, but don't count on it. And hopefully it happens more often than your recalcitrant teenager. The other type of sexual arousal or desire, and I won't go into it too much here, but I can do that elsewhere, but desire I define as a mental, emotional feeling you'd like to make love or become erotic or sexual in any way. And arousal is the body physiology response, the lubrication, the swelling of tissues, the engorgement. Responsive desire arises in response to other stimuli. It's not, I'm so horny, I must have you now. And this is critical to put out there. There's a researcher at University of British Columbia where some of the really top sexuality research is coming out right now. Her name's Rosemary Basson. People can look her up. 
And one of her findings, I love the way she puts it, is that the majority of long-term couples start making love from a place of sexual neutrality. Now, what does she mean by that? She means we start making love not because either of us is turned on or horny or aroused or has desire. We start making love because it's Tuesday and we've decided at the bare minimum every Tuesday we'll have a sexual encounter together. We start making love because it's our anniversary, our birthday, or it's a lock day, not necessarily because we are turned on. And we allow our desire and our body arousal to respond to other things, a touch, a kiss, a bath, a sex toy, some lube, an erotic something you watch or listen to, just snuggling and breathing and mindfully trying to bring your mind out of work out of childcare and into the smell when I nestle my face into your chest and so on. So I just want to put that out there. The three most important things I ever say in my sex therapist role is you are normal. You are normal if maybe once a month, maybe once every quarter, you spontaneously have a lusty encounter with your long-term partner. We need to learn to recultivate. That's the second two sides of that passion triangle, the thrill and the sensuality. We need to create passion. And I can hear it now because I get the same protest every time I say this, but Dr. Cheryl, planning for sex is not romantic. And I say, I know, honey, but you know what's really not romantic? Never having sex. (laughs) So enjoy the heck out of spontaneous desire when it captures us. Beautiful. I love it too, of course. But create the circumstances for your sexuality. Honor and prioritize your erotic life to other people because let's just be super simple. The one thing that sets apart my romantic chosen relationship, especially if I'm choosing monogamy, is the sexual naked part. And it's the part that most couples really, really, really neglect. Put that out there. Reassure your clients. There's a great book we'll put in the show notes by Emily Nagoski that covers that material in a super clear, relatable, wonderfully written way. And uh, if everybody listening does nothing else but buy that book, tell their patients about that book and start creating more love and passion with their partner right now, hello, then this will have been a terrific morning. <laughs> is, that, is that the Come As You Are book that you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, it's such yeah. a it's such a good yeah. book. And when I read that book, I really thought of my stepdaughter, Kenji's daughter, and you know, she's 17. And I was just like, if only every 15, 16, 17 year old read this because sex is such a good thing, but we are taught culturally from such a young age, how fraught it is and carry all this baggage and what a gift to give a teenager the chance to really just see sex as good and not have to have all that baggage. I think this book is phenomenal, really phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So we'll put it in the notes for sure. And if people want to learn more about the Passion Triangle, I'm giving a series of free Passion Masterclasses this month. And we'll also talk about uh, the Immersive Couples Program on those. If people want to join the next opening, I teach it once a year, maybe twice, is November 1st. We're going to, I can't wait to welcome the new bunch of couples. I've got all sorts of extra guests and whatnot up my, up my sleeve. And you've also offered to do a Q&A just for actually our listeners mm-hmm. and our Facebook group members, actually. And so we're going to also put your email address there in the show notes so people can send you questions ahead of time. And I believe it's October 22nd, I want to say, yeah, of this month. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put all those details in the show notes as well. So if people want to come and you'll get questions ahead of time, some people aren't embarrassed to ask them and they can have this chance to interact with you because yeah, if you don't have your relationship with your significant other, like nothing else matters, no matter how much, how big your real estate portfolio goes, it it just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why we're so honored to have you here. It's great. And I can't wait for the Q&A. And yes, people can send me and I can keep their names anonymous when I answer them, of course. So we can have a really open discussion and get very explicit around the sexuality piece as well, because we're not afraid of bodies and body function people. Let's talk about it openly with grace and with respect, but openly. So we always close our interviews with uh, two questions of our guests. Uh, The first one is, what is your definition of rich? I think we could anticipate this one, but to me personally, and I hope for all beings, for everyone. But personally, uh, I feel rich when I am in flow with my partner, where I feel open, I feel beautifully vulnerable, nothing held back, where I respect and admire his crazy side of the clock, even though I don't understand it half the time. When I'm in love and being love, when I'm bringing just bravery 
to our life, emotionally, spiritually, and sexually. So deep love with him, because that's where I draw like my wellspring to then hopefully bring deep love minus the naked part to everyone else, to clients, to students, to couples, to teaching, to neighbors. You know, I have a very strong Buddhist background and, and the act of compassion, deeply caring about all. But if we don't replenish at source, because I'm not an awakened being, we lose that. We get more selfish. We get more tight. So being rich is to be deeply open and vulnerable in the riskiest and greatest investment we can ever make, which is in, in a profound relationship with, with the person we love. Beautiful. And then a second question is, what is one strategy, habit, or mindset that separates someone who is rich versus someone who is poor? Setting intentions and following through. And I like to break that down to very simple daily intentions. And I'll share one that's a relationship intention that my sweetheart and I do. And I talk about a lot. I call it a daily mindful, loving intention. And it's this simple. In the mornings, most mornings, not always, we sit down and he has his coffee. He's a coffee snob. I have my tea. I'm a tea snob. So I'm like sipping my first flush Darjeeling and he's got his Ethiopian single origin or whatever. We sit down. Usually there's a dog or a cat draped somewhere. And we say, babe, what's your relationship intention today? And we pick one thing, big or small, for today that will be actioned today because the road to hell is paved with and so on. Intentions alone aren't any good. And I'll pick one from a couple days ago. Mine was a very simple one that day. It was when you get home tonight and when I get finished at XYZ at 7 p.m., uh, we're going to sit on the couch and I'm going to give you a foot rub and hear about your day. All right. Simple, actionable. And his was that day, I don't remember, but his a couple days ago was when I get home tonight, we're going to get in the steam shower and we're going to have a steam shower together and then we're hitting the sheets. Time to get sexual. Planning for passion. Planning that we will create responsive desire. And another one I want to put out there because uh, a lot of persons might find this one useful. One that I use a lot because as you hear, I've got a very expressive voice. And that means when I'm irritable, it's a very expressive voice. I don't know, Kenji, I, I thought you got it. And that's something I'm consistently working on. Fairly often, I create a new intention for today and say, babe, today my intention is if I feel impatient or rushed, I'm going to really cultivate a kind tone of voice when I speak. So it can be big, it can be small. So what separates rich from poor in relationship, in life, in business, in anything? Set daily intentions, turn it into an action that you can complete today. And then check in for a moment at the end of the day with yourself or ideally with someone else as well and say, did I do it? And if not, can I do it now? Right. And those small wins become self-propagating, right? Because as you prove to yourself you're winning and winning, you start to even take bigger actions mm -hmm. and to be more secure in the fact that you're going to follow through. I think that's really powerful. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for being with us and for offering to host a Q&A based on this podcast. And again, can you just tell listeners one more time how to get a hold of you if they want to reach out and take some of your programs? Yes, for sure. The easiest is either on Facebook or my on my website, which are both just my name, Dr. Cheryl Fraser, C-H-E-R-Y-L Fraser, not the American way like Fraser, mm -hmm. the TV show, F-R-A-S-E-R, -E the Scottish way. And click below. You can sign up for, I send out weekly small videos. I call them love bites. They're three to five minutes long of a relationship teaching each week. People really love those because if we can get a weekly shot in the arm, they come out Tuesday mornings and it's like, right. I should work on that today. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to give my sweetheart a really deep hug when they get home today. So there's all sorts of ways to learn about what I do. Please join me and uh, please come to the free classes this that I'm putting online this week. And I hope many of you will join the relationship intensive so we can really invest in the, the real estate of your heart and your loins, I guess. <laughs> and so while you're building your empire, you're also making love, laughing, understanding each other and, and learning from each other instead of just being marriage incorporated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're so excited about taking the course together. So yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. I can't wait to have you guys in there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for everything you do to really help professionals that are stressed, burned out, and miserable really create lives that they love and relationships they love. It's so, so, so important. And as you know, every clinician you help, you're helping all the trickle-down effect of all their patients, all the people they touch. So it's tremendous pay-it-forward work, and I really applaud you both for it. Thank you. Thank you.
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.